This morning we're starting a, a new series that is going to be sort of our focus for the fall. And you can see we're calling it greater than. And today we're talking about high places. Now to get started, I, I was explained to me that something that makes complete sense in my head, I need to explain. So you'll see the purple, what somebody said, well, is that like a number eight? Well, what is that? That's actually the Greek letter theta. Some of you that went were in fraternities or all of that in college may know that. Theta is the first letter of the word theos, which would be the word for God in Greek. And really what we want to talk about in this series, just to kind of take away the suspense, that God is supposed to be greater than everything else. That's supposed to be a greater than sign. Okay? So you're going to see that. You're going to see that here. You're going to see it when we go back into the gym and all of those kinds of things. But we really, this series, where it came out of. Sometimes when we pick series, it's simply Lloyd just, is praying and says, hey, I think this would be a good thing for us to do. This particular series called Greater Than really comes out of a long conversation that the elders and the ministry staff were having, really talking about us as a church rebooting. So this series has really developed over the last sort of eight or nine months as conversations have been going on saying, what do we need to address as a church? What do we need to think about? But in some ways, I don't want you to think of this just as, hey, this is a church-wide thing. Because the, the temptation is when we say, well, this is a church thing, is we can go, yeah, okay, great, it's for everybody else but me. It is my prayer that as we talk about greater than, and we walk through this series, is that not only does this do something in us as a church, but really the only way it's going to do something in us in a, as a church is if it does something in you and me. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 talks about us being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 talks about us being transformed. And our prayer would be that this series is really going to do that. It's going to do some conforming work in each of our lives. It's going to do some transforming work in each of our lives. So that we really can say, not just at the end of the series, but throughout our lives, that there is nothing greater in our lives than God. That there's one thing and only one thing that can be on this side of the greater than sign, and that would be God. Now, in some ways, this is a little bit of an odd series, and today seems a little bit odd for me. This is a, a little different sermon, so part of me wanted to bring a rocking chair. Because to start, what I want to do is tell you two stories. And I don't normally tell a lot of stories. My kids tell me I'm not a very good storyteller, so if you want to leave right now, I'll understand. But I want to tell you two stories. Two stories that I think set up this series and also I think can maybe prepare us about, God, what do you need to do in my life? The first story, both of them are true, but the first story goes back a little bit in history, not as long as the second story, but the first story takes us back to a night, December 29th, 1972. On that particular night, an Eastern Airlines L-1011, and L-1011s were a McDonnell Douglas plane that was fairly, or Lockheed plane, fairly new, had come out, but was big and impressive and all those things. And that particular night, an L-1011 was supposed to take off. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was supposed to take off from New York City and fly down to Miami. Now, typically, these flights... At that time of the year, people wanted to be in Miami, not in New York. So the evening flight from New York to Miami was always jam-packed. 
And flight 401 was, it was fully booked. Not a seat left on the plane. In fact, the couple that wanted to get engaged on the flight, the girl didn't know that. The guy actually upgraded to first class because that was all the seats that were left. Well, as it turned out, 68 people, for some unknown reasons, changed their plans. So instead of the plane being jam-packed, there was only 160 people on the plane when it took off at 9.20 p.m. from JFK Airport. The flight itself was really fairly routine. Nothing, anything. They're just cruising along. Most of the flight, the co-pilot actually was flying with, you know, autopilot kicked in. And the pilot, the captain, was talking to the radio guys. As they got close to Miami, though, the radio traffic began to pick up because in front of Eastern 401 was National Airlines Flight 607. And National Airlines Flight 607 realized we've got a problem with our landing gear. Because of a hydraulic leak, their landing gear wouldn't come down properly. And so they had to actually crank it down. And so if you and I were at 30,000 feet above Miami International Airport, you would have seen all the emergency vehicles out, everybody ready, thinking, oh, boy, we could have a problem. We got a plane coming down, and it doesn't, we don't know if its landing gear is going to work. Well, as that chatter is kind of coming to an end, they're getting it figured out. And I'm not a pilot, and I've never, I've listened sometimes on the plane. They'll let you listen in, and it's like, they're talking in code. I have no idea what they just said. I hope this isn't bad. You know, it's code words. But the regional controller who was kind of carrying the flight, handling the flight as it was in air, said, now it's time for you to turn. I think the call signal was 118.3 to go to the carrier, to the controller in the air, in the control tower. Talk to the controller there because you're ready for final approach. You're ready to come down. As Eastern 401 made that switch to the controller, the captain, the first officer, and the engineer began to go through the checklist you go through if you're going to bring down, you know, a mammoth plane. And so they're going through the checklist, and in the process of going through that checklist, a problem became apparent. See, there's a little light on the cockpit panel that's supposed to tell you when the nose gear the, the landing gear of the nose, when that pops into place, a light's supposed to come on and tell you it's down. But the light didn't come on. So, you know, if I was in the cockpit at that particular time, I might have wet my pants. I'm thinking, this is bad. Now, if you go back and read the transcript from the flight voice recorder, they just seem kind of frustrated. Like, oh, man, we're, you know, this is frustrating kind of a thing. And so they... They kind of reversed the process. They think they brought the landing gear back up and then tried to put it back down, and they were thinking that's what they did, but still the light didn't come on. Now, realize these are people that have flown for years. I, I believe the captain was 55 years old and had been a commercial airline pilot for more than 30 years. The, the co-pilot was 51 years old and was a retired Air Force pilot. He hadn't flown commercially as long, but, I mean, he had flown a long time. These are very experienced guys. They know what's going on. And so it's like, well, maybe what we need to do is we're going to call the control tower and, you know, see if we can turn, you know, kind of pull out of land, final approach and sweep around and we'll try to bring this thing down. So they call the control tower, and the control tower says, great idea, let's get this plane back up to 2,000 feet, circle around. Okay. Now, while they are doing that, the flight engineer does something to try to test the light bulb. 
we don't know exactly what he tried to do, but whatever he tried to do wasn't clear. I mean, it wasn't conclusive as to what the problem was. So then the pilot, actually, sorry, it was the co-pilot. The co-pilot said, because the light is on his side of the control panel, he's looking and he says, I don't know if that thing is sitting in there, right? I don't know if that fixture is in there properly. Maybe it's just a bad connection. Now, the co-pilot's flying the plane at this point, and at this point, you know, and I don't know, again, I've never flown a plane. I've flown in planes. He's hanging on, I'm assuming, because they're climbing up to 2,000 feet. I'm hoping somebody's hanging on to this thing. So the pilot tries to reach over from his seat over to get the silly thing out, and he can't do it. So then the flight engineer, and I'm assuming by how it's described, he must have reached over the co-pilot trying to get it out. He couldn't get it out. And, and the pilot, and, and in case you go and Google this, I don't endorse the language that was used in the cockpit at this particular time, okay? I'm just, so I'm giving you a, a G-rated version of some of it. They were a little frustrated. So the pilot says to the co-pilot, put the stupid plane on autopilot and get that thing out. So he does. Puts it on autopilot, pulls it out, hands it to the flight engineer. Now, at this point, we don't know. Now, there was an eyewitness who provided some testimony. We, we, there was an eyewitness, and the flight engineer, he did something to the fixture, but they, no one knows exactly what he did. At some point, he hands it back to the co-pilot. Now, the fixture appears to be a square, and the light bulb thing, the, the, the mounting, both look to be square. Now, those of you that have ever tried to put a square peg in a square hole, you kind of figure out it really doesn't matter how you put it in, right? Well, that's what they thought. But somehow it must have gotten twisted because when they went to stick it back in, they got it partway in but not fully in, and now it was stuck tight. And they couldn't get the silly thing out. Now they're getting a little frustrated at this point. The frustration level kind of keeps going, and there's no light, so they don't know. So the pilot says to the flight engineer, I want you to get in the compartment underneath the cockpit and figure out if that landing gear's down. Now, you might be saying, why didn't they do that sooner? Why didn't they do that right away? Well, that compartment is known as the hell hole. So it's not exactly a place you want to go, is my understanding. Now, the, co the flight engineer began to get ready to climb down in there, and all of a sudden, they have this discussion, how do you get that light out? Let's get some pliers. And the flight engineers, well, I've got pliers, but then they're talking about it. If we take pliers onto that fixture and yank it out, we're probably going to break the fixture. Anybody got a Kleenex? I mean, that's what they're saying. Do we put Kleenexes around it? Literally, that was an endorsement. I guess the first, you know, endorsement, you can buy Kleenexes. Get your Kleenex, put it around it. So the flight engineer gets distracted, and the pilot's like, hey, let's just, you know, let's get on to this. So the pilot again says to the flight engineer, you need to get down in the hole. You need to figure out, is the landing gear engaged? We need to know this. Now, as they're kind of having all this going on, the altitude alert gives a C-chord signal. Now, I am assuming by C chord they mean the musical C chord. I don't know what else a C chord is, and I don't know what exactly it sounds like, but the C chord alarm goes off, goes for about a second or so, and then stops. 
And they don't, the crew doesn't seem to have any awareness of this happening. None at all. Just in case you're wondering, this is kind of a hint in the story. Altitude alarms go off because you're dropping from the altitude you set yourself to be at. So what we know at this point is they're no longer 2,000 feet. They've been descending and they don't know it. Now at this point, the air traffic controller notices on his display, on his radar screen, that, that, that suggests that the plane is at 900 feet. So what does he do? He calls the plane. Eastern 401, this is Miami Tower. How are things going? Pilot says, good. The captain, things are going good. We, we, we want to complete our turnaround and bring her in. Okay, sounds good. As that communication ends, the co-pilot who's flying the plane all of a sudden says basically these words. We must have done something to the altitude. At that point, the pilot says, what? Very momentarily later, hardly any time at all, the air traffic controller looks at his radar screen and sees the letters C-S-T. Those are the letters that show up when you've had a signal and you've been tracking it, but all of a sudden you no longer have a signal from that. Something, a light bulb, became more important than flying a plane. And so at 11.42 p.m. on December 28, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 flew into the ground in the Florida Everglades at 227 miles per hour and 103 people died. Something became greater than flying the plane. Let's tell you another story. This one goes back farther. This one is a story of Solomon. Just in case you're wondering, Solomon's story starts with him being born. Kind of where your story begins in a sense. Technically, we start at conception, but in terms of being labeled and named and all that, it starts at birth. And we know from Solomon's story starting at birth, he is loved by God. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to bounce around, so if you just want to write down the references, you want to try and flip to all of them, great. But 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, we're introduced to, Sam, or to Solomon. And then David comforted his wife. This goes back to what we looked at in Psalm 51. A couple of weeks ago, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now, Jedidiah may not be a name that you're really familiar with, but it literally means beloved of the Lord. Okay, So here's this baby that's born, and God sends Nathan the prophet to tell 
in essence, tell Solomon, but also to tell his parents, hey, this kid, this person is loved by God, and we're going to give him a nickname, Jedediah, beloved of God. I love this kid. You know, this is sort of the voice of God telling all of this. Now, we don't know a whole lot from the time of his birth forward for a while. We don't know about his growing up years. We don't know, you know, how he did in school or all of those kinds of things. Did he like peanut butter and jam sandwiches? We don't know. Uh, I, I tend to think he didn't like peanut butter and jam sandwiches because I think intelligent people don't, but that's just my opinion. Um, and I just alienated half the crowd, but that's okay, uh, I think. Uh, there's a way out of here, I think, I hope, I pray. Um, we don't know much about his growing up, but what we do know is as he got a little bit older, it became apparent that part of God loving Solomon was God had something very significant that he wanted Solomon to do. What he did is he wanted Solomon to build the temple. He wanted Solomon to build that one unique place where God would make his presence known in all the earth. He wanted Solomon to build that. Let me read sort of the description of that in Second Chronicles chapter, sorry, First Chronicles chapter 22. Verses 7 to 10. Then David said to Solomon, My son, I, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build the house to my name because you have shed so much blood, the blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his, name shall, and for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build the house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Okay? Solomon was given an enormous job by God. Build the temple, the unique place where I'm going to reveal my glory, Solomon. You're going to build. That's what God's saying. But he's also saying, Solomon, not only am I going to ask you to do a big job, but I'm going to be hugely invested in a relationship with you. We're going to be tight. I'm committing myself, God says, to that. I'm in this for you. I'm in this with you. This is us together. As the story of Solomon unfolds, it, it does appear that Solomon was tracking pretty good with this stuff. That he seemed to understand and he seemed to follow along and realize this is a big deal and I need to pay, pay careful attention to these things. So much so that when God appears to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, and God basically says to Solomon, Solomon, here's a blank check. Ask me for whatever you want. Now think about that for a second. If God asks you, you can have anything you want, what would you ask for? Solomon's given that opportunity. Whatever you want, it's yours. And Solomon responds and says, I need, I need an understanding mind. I need a mind that in verse 9 of 1 Kings chapter 3, I need to be able to I have a discerning mind. I need to know the difference between good and evil. I, I need that. I can't do this without that. I need your help, Lord, to do that. Now, there's a small aside we kind of need to insert here. Kind of a little bit of a pause in the story. 
it is part of the story of Solomon, but it's, it's sort of set up almost like this little editorial aside thing. It's really where the reason why we have high places here. You see, Solomon did something in his life. Solomon went and worshipped at high places. Real quickly, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, just a brief side comment. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Before the people of Israel had gone into the promised land, back in Numbers chapter 33, verse 52, God had told the people very clearly, hey, when you get in there, when you get into the promised land, you are to destroy all the high places. And really what high places were, basically, they were places of worship that the Canaanite people, all those different Hittites and Amorites, all of them called the Canaanites, it would be places where they would go and they would worship. Now, some of their worship, quite honestly, was not exactly particularly attractive or nice. They, in some of their places, they might have sacrificed their kids. A lot of it had to do with a lot of sexual kinds of things and fertility kinds of things that really aren't pleasant and nice, but that's what was taking place there. And God said, get rid of those. But if you read through the Old Testament, both pre-Solomon and post-Solomon, you'll see that the people of Israel, they still kind of went to those high places. They kind of used those high places. And, and you could say sometimes the people of Israel went and they were worshiping those other gods, worshiping those idols. Sometimes, like Solomon, they were just going to worship God. And you say, well, they redeemed those places. In a sense, maybe there is a redeeming quality there. But in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 5, again, before the people went into the promised land, God had said, you don't just worship me anywhere. You worship where I say you worship. You come according to how I say, not how you say. So Solomon, it seems from this verse, is somebody that God matters to Solomon. He's not ignoring God. No, he's, he's concerned about God. He desires God. He seems to understand he's supposed to have a relationship with God. But not everything in his life is really lining up here. There's some dissonance. Back to the story of Solomon. Solomon does build the temple. You can read the story in 1 Kings chapter 6 through 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon builds the temple and there is a glorious dedication. Huge celebration. Huge clearly focusing on God and God's glory and God's honor. And you think, wow! And then we come into 1 Kings chapter 9 and for a second time, God shows Himself. God appears and has a conversation with Solomon. And when he does that, in essence, what God does is he says, Solomon, I want you to know this is what I desire. Here's what I desire. Here's what I want. And if you do what I want, Solomon, here's all the blessings that are going to flow. If you obey my desires, here's what's going to happen. And if you disobey, here's what's going to happen. God kind of laid it out pretty clearly. And so for this guy that would have a very discerning mind of good and evil and all of that, it should have been pretty clear. 
If I do what God wants, this is what's going to happen. If I disobey God and don't do it, this is what's going to happen. It was laid out really clearly. Really clearly. And Solomon seemed to be tracking with that. Because if you come then to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, you kind of get the sense that Solomon had become a very powerful and impressive guy. He understood so much. He's described this way. Again, sort of a little editorial description, the narrator kind of jumping into the story. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And while the whole earth, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Solomon was at the top of the game. You could say that the flight was going.